So, Luke chapter 9, verses 43 through 50. Let's get through this, because I would like to get through this in about 30 minutes and have us break out and discuss some things. So, let's read, and then let's go over it. Starting in verse 43, it says, And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was hidden from them, so they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. And he said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, all will be great. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he did not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. So as we kind of have this transition and a little context from last week, or a couple weeks ago, just to, again, to give us context, leading up to this, we saw Jesus ask his disciples some, some pretty uh, hard things to, to commit to, which was to take up their cross, to follow him, to deny themselves. Uh, and then he, he revealed to Peter, James, and John um, who, who he truly was, right? That he was more than just this great man, that he truly was you know, divine, that he was deity, that he was God. And so he reveals himself through the transfiguration on the mountain to these three disciples who were, were kind of uh, like we would call like the lead disciples out of the 12, that, that Jesus wanted to reveal to these three disciples so that when it came to this call to deny yourself and to follow him, it wasn't just this, you know, there was no evidence or support to back it up, but Jesus is like, look, I'm telling you to do this, and I know this is a hard thing to do, but here's who I really am. And as you understand who I really am, what I'm calling you to do is not that outlandish. It's not that crazy, because ultimately you're not following some kook. You're following God, right? What you are obeying is the commands of God. And so he transfigures himself on the mountain, uh, reveals who he is, that he is not just man, but he is also God. Can you, can you guys, in the back is distracting me. So you've got the transfiguration on the mountain, and then he, he heals this boy who has had this demon possession since he was a child. That's what the father says, because Jesus asks him, how long is, has this child been possessed? So the, the father, who's desperate, right, loves his child, brings his child to the disciples so the disciples could cast out the demon, right? What did they do? Were they able to do it? No, they weren't able to do it, which is really ironic because then John right here, as we see in verse 49, kind of gets a little prideful and a little upset that there's other people actually casting out demons, and he's like, stop, you're not allowed to do that, and Jesus is like, don't tell them to stop, right? Here you are, this faithless and perverse generation that Jesus calls them, when, he, when he's talking to the Father and the scribes and disciples and everyone who's around, here they are unable to cast out this demon from this child, and then there's this other group of, of, of guys or people, I don't know what, what the reference is. John's saying that someone was casting out demons in his name. 
and they're doing it. And, but yet John's pride gets in the way here. And so it's kind of ironic that they weren't able to do it, and then there's this other group who's also following Jesus, unable, or that is able to do it, but John condemns them from doing it, and Jesus corrects them and says, no, allow them. They are for us. They are on our side. So we get to this point where then Jesus actually casts out the demon from the boy, right? Which this was different than any other demon because this was a mute spirit. And typically they thought you had to know the name to call them by name to cast them out. Yet with Jesus, it was, the name was irrelevant because Jesus has the authority and the power to do so. So he casts them out. And they're all amazed by this, right? They're, they're completely amazed. It says in verse 43, it says they were all amazed at the majesty of of God. And it says, but while everyone marveled, they were amazed, they were marveling. What we would call is they were, they were blown away, right? They were just completely blown away by what this man just did, that Jesus was able to cast out this demon from this boy and to have the power and the authority to do that and to heal the child. It says in verse 42 that Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. And, and there's something to be said of these miracles that are happening. Like, Jesus cares about the physical, right? Like, he cares what's happening. He, he cares what's happening in your personal life. Like, whether it's, it's health, whether it's, you know, physical health, mental health, whether it's, you know, simple problems that, that you may have just in school or with your family, or even big things like, like this war that we're seeing in, in Ukraine, right? Like, God cares about everything, whether it's huge or little, and so Jesus, when he's here, he cares about the physical. He cares about, you know, obviously he cares about justice. He cares about, you know, people being oppressed. He cares about people being mistreated. We know that. He cares about people who are suffering. He cares about people who are dealing with health ailments. And so when he came, he dealt with those things, right? When people came and they brought, you know, their, you know, when the four friends brought their paralytic friend, right? Jesus wasn't like, guys, I'm, I'm teaching. Can you stop? <laughs> like, I, I don't have time to heal this man, right? It's important that I preach the gospel at this point, which Jesus was. But Jesus, because he's not just, he, does, he also, I'm trying to say he also cares about the physical. He cares what's happening in our life. But what we're going to see is that even when Jesus does all these amazing things, it doesn't cause people to believe. Just because we see a crazy, awesome miracle, it doesn't mean that I've repented of my sins and put my faith in Jesus and the work that he's done on the cross. Yeah, I might be blown away. I might marvel, just like in the Old Testament when, you know, Elijah called down fire from heaven and it consumed the altar and everything around it, even after he doused it with tons of water, people were amazed and awestruck. But that's all it led to. It didn't lead to a transformation. It didn't lead to a trust and belief and a surrender to God. And yet, that's what the gospel does. And we're going to see that, yes, Jesus cares about all the things that are happening in our life. He cares about it. But there's also a more of an importance to the spiritual things that are in our life. Because, I mean, look, if, if he were to come and he were to heal every and, and free and heal everything that happens on earth— but we were all to go to hell, that's not great. What's more important is that we come to know Jesus Christ spiritually and that we're freed from our sins rather than freed from anything else here 
in this world. Again, not that Jesus doesn't care about what's happening. He does, because we see it all throughout the Gospels. But it's of importance that Jesus was to share the gospel. He was the gospel, but he also cared about the minute things. And so when the four friends brought the paralytic friend, you know, he stopped what he was doing, and he healed the man. And he said, you know, he, well, the first thing he said, what, is he, what did he say? What was the first thing he said to the paralytic man who could, has never walked in his life? Is that what he said? Can we find it? Let's find it, because I'm just spitballing here. It'd be better if we read the scripture rather than me guessing what it is. Um, somebody Google it for me. Take out your phone. You're allowed to. Where, where is it at? I want to I read it, though. I want to make sure. It's in one of the Gospels. Somebody find it. found it. All right, he said, your sins are forgiven. There we go. I just, I, I was pretty sure, but I had to make sure. So these friends bring the paralytic friend, like, to bring him for what reason? So that Jesus would forgive his sins? No, what they bring him for? So that he could walk, so they could heal him of his, his paralysis, right? So that he could experience what it's like to walk. Yet the first thing that Jesus says the first thing that Jesus says to him is your sins are forgiven. And the dude's probably thinking, like, I didn't come here for that. But then you would realize that, oh my goodness, my sins being forgiven is better than the ability to walk, even though I've never experienced it. But again, Jesus cares about this man, and so he does heal him of his paralysis, and he says, Rise, take up your bed. And walk. And the, and the beautiful story about that, and we're kind of going off on a tangent, the beautiful thing about that is for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven was crazy, right? Like, only God can do that. And, and they knew that. The scribes understood that. And they're like, that's blasphemy. There's no way that he, he can say that. He's allowed to say that. We should crucify him, right? He's not, that's blasphemy. Only God can say that. And then, then, it, then the question comes up, well, how do you prove that your sins are forgiven? You can't, right? You can't prove that this man's sins were forgiven, which means that you can't prove that what Jesus said was, was right and that it happened. But you can, and Jesus did prove it. Do you know how he proved it? By making the man walk. If he's able to make the man walk and show, and in, in, in for them to have a visual that, this, that Jesus said, rise, take up your bed, and walk, then what he said prior that preceded that, that your sins are forgiven, must also be true and that he has the power to do that. Because no man can say, rise up and take up your bed and walk to a paralytic. If you did that, that would be really mean, right? But Jesus did, and he, the guy was able to walk, which again proved that when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, that meant your sins are forgiven. So all this to say is that Jesus cares about the spiritual, he cares about your heart more than anything else. But he also cares about what's happening in your own life the little things, the big things, the physical, okay? But again, sometimes we get so focused on Jesus, wanting Jesus to make us taller or smaller 
or to heal us of this ailment or to do this. And, and sometimes that's not in God's will. But in God's will is that no man should perish. That's his desire, that he doesn't want anyone to go to hell. But he also can't force any one of us to trust him. Right? The, the trust has to be of your own accord. The faith has to be of your own accord. You have to put your trust and faith in who Jesus is and what he has done. And if it's of his will, then yeah, he can help you and do th- things in this area, but he may not. Because even though we know a lot about God, he's also a mystery, right? And we're going to see that in here. So it says they were all amazed at the majesty of God. They were just blown away by what, what Jesus was doing. And it, said, it says in verse 43, while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, and, and Jesus is like, he, he, he's doing all this, and he's like, gosh, I don't want people to, to so much focus on this that they miss what I'm truly here for. That, yeah, they're marveling at this amazing things that I'm doing, casting out demons, raising people from the dead, making the paralytic walk, making the mute speak. All these things are awesome, but Jesus doesn't want it to distract from his real mission and his real purpose. Not just for everyone, but he's also specifically for the disciples because even they themselves were getting distracted by it. And it says, Jesus says in verse 44, let these words sink down into your ears. Do you think that him saying that means whatever comes after this is important? Yeah, it must be really important. It's like Jesus saying, look, what I'm about to say is really important. Now, everything that Jesus says is important, right? But here so, more than ever, it's like, let, he's basically, every t- anytime he's like, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear, Right? He says, let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And we know the Son of Man is the Son of God. We know that the Son of God is Jesus. He is the second person in the tri-head, the the triunion of God. We've got God the Father, we've got Jesus the Son, and we've got the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says, that he himself is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Which is interesting because I feel like to be betrayed, you would almost like have to not know that it's coming, right? Like that it, it's, it's almost a shock that it's, that it's happening behind your back. And in a sense, it, it almost is happening behind Jesus' back, but he's aware of all of it, right? Because it's not like Jesus came here to heal and to do all these wonderful miracles, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Judas betrays him, and he's like, whoa! And Judas is like, gotcha, and Jesus never knew, right? And then all of a sudden, all these religious people want Jesus to be crucified because he proclaims to be the Son of God, and they believe that he's not the Son of God, yet he is the Son of God. So Jesus is not fooled. He's not taken aback. He, he knows what's happening, and not only does he not know... Not only does he know what's happening, but he's, he's planned it. Like, he's, he's sovereign over this. And that's important to understand, because he tells us that no man takes his life, but what does he do? What does he do? He lays down his life. That it was the decision of Jesus himself to lay down his life. Not that somebody took it by brute force or intellect or anything else or that Jesus was naive to the whole thing, 
No, Jesus willingly, and that, there's, a, there's a big difference between somebody taking your life and you willingly laying down your life. And that shows us the commitment and the love that Jesus has for people to willingly lay down his life, even though he knew people would betray him. And we see that one of the closest people to him would betray him. And who was that? Judas. And Judas is the one who's going to betray him. The people around him are going to be the ones as well who are going to betray him, who are going to release Barabbas and have Jesus crucified because they believe that the one sin that he's committed is that he's called himself the Son of God, right? They couldn't find any other dirt on him. They couldn't find anything, anything, not a single sin. Do you know why? Because he never sinned. Like, even that in itself shows us that Jesus was a perfect man because they couldn't find even a simple thing of, you know, yeah, he was, you know, I don't know, what's, he lied. Well, I guess they think he lied by saying he's the son of God. Uh, You know, he cheated, he did this, he did that. Like, they couldn't find a single thing because he was perfect. And so they found the one thing that Jesus came to tell them of that they believed was not truth, yet it was truth, and they crucified him for it. He said, He is the son of God. Jesus says, I am the son of man. I'm about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And remember, Jesus precedes this with, you know, let this sink down into your ears. And so he wants them to understand that even in the midst of all the miracles, even in the midst of all the cool things that you're marveling at, that's great. But more important than that is my mission. And my mission is to lay down my life. And he warns the disciples to focus on that, to understand that, that it's of utmost importance that you know that I'm about to be betrayed, that you know that I'm about to die. And, and we have to, now imagine this from the disciples' point of view. Don't imagine this from your point of view because it's hard because we're, you know, 2,000 years later, we know everything that's transpired. It's like, yeah, we know even when Jesus was born, we know that he was going to die. The disciples didn't know this. So to them, this is like, it would be a shock, right? Like, here's God in, in man's flesh, and he's saying that he's going to have to die, that he's going to die. Like, things aren't clicking. It just doesn't make sense. It's like they think, well, God, you're here. Why don't you just set up your kingdom now? Why don't you just do, you know, what, what you, you ultimately want to do? Why don't you do it now? They don't understand the importance of him dying on the cross for our sins and then rising again but they will understand the importance after the fact. And so again, he says, you know, let these words sink down into your ears that Jesus has to die. I mean, that's, this is the gospel that, that Jesus is, is warning them and, and telling them this is the most important thing is the gospel. The miracles, the healings, the casting out of demons, they're all great. They, all, they're all, they come with God. That's who God is. But what's of more importance is the gospel, that Jesus Christ will die for our sins and rise again. And so in verse 45, it says, They did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Jesus reminded them over and over and over again that he was about to die, and it just didn't click. And I think there was two reasons for this. I think think part of it was that God withheld it from them, but also part of their, their lack of faith and, and their pride was also getting in the way of them truly trusting and believing in what Jesus was saying. I, I think both played 
hand in, ha- hand in that, and that's why it was hidden from them, so that they could not perceive it. But I believe that they perceived it and they understood it the moment that Jesus was resurrected. It says in Luke 24, and we'll get there in a long time, but Luke 24, 6 through 8, it says, He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. It says in verse 8 that they remembered his words. Like, all of a sudden, just, like, it clicked. They're like, oh, my gosh, yeah, like, Jesus told us this would happen. Now it all makes sense. It's, 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 it, we understand it. And sometimes that happens to us. Like, we hear Scripture over and over and over again, and sometimes we're, we just don't perceive it until a moment when it just clicks. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's the Holy Spirit. Well, I know the Holy Spirit's in work of it. I don't know if it's, if it's us truly then surrendering and, and understanding, you know, the words of Jesus. I don't know. But there comes a time for the disciples when they truly understand these things that were once hidden to them. It says in verse 46, Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. Now, I don't know the time frame behind like how far this happened after Jesus says, I'm about to die and be betrayed by men. You know, but I don't think it was that far after. So we're going to read this contextually. That Then the disciples were like, okay, who's the greatest, right? Like, what do we say? Who's, who's the goat, right? That's what they're trying to figure out. Who's the greatest of them all? Out of the 12 disciples, who's the greatest? Could you imagine that segue? Like Jesus is like, guys, I'm about to be betrayed by men. And they're like, okay, okay. But who's the greatest? Is it me? Is it James? Is it Peter? Is it John? Is it that guy? I don't even know his name because we really haven't even talked, right? Like, I don't know. Like, is it that weirdo over there? Who is the greatest? And as they're disputing this, what does this reveal about them? They're prideful. Yeah, prideful, selfish. I imagine that Peter, James, and John probably had more to contribute to the reasoning behind they thought they were the greatest, right? Because they'd be like, well, we saw Jesus transfigured. You didn't. We're probably the greatest. He probably loves us more. He probably thinks that, you know, I've cast out more demons than you have, right? I've cast out uh, worse demons than you have. I've healed more people, right? It, it becomes this, this, this fight to see who is the greatest. Who would sit at the right hand of God? And James and John, they believed that they were so great that they even sent their own mother to ask Jesus for this favor that they both would sit next to Jesus in his kingdom. Could you imagine your mom going up and asking Jesus, hey, like, you know, you mind if they, they sit in your right hand, your left hand? This is what it says in Matthew 20, 21. It says, Jesus said to her, to the mother of James and John, what do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. Jesus goes on later, I don't have it in front of me, but he's like, you don't really know what you're asking, right? It's like when we pray for God's will to be done. It's like we think that it's going to be all, you know, roses and and skipping and, I don't know, it's like it's going to be nice and merry, but praying for God's will, like you don't understand that God's will was for Jesus to walk Calvary and to be crucified and to die, right? 
And that is part of God's will for us, is that we would take up our cross and follow him and deny ourselves, right? So when we're praying for God's will, it's not always what we expect. And so when it, when it comes to asking for her sons to be at the right hand and left hand of, of God and his kingdom, she doesn't really know what she's asking. Because in reality, what it takes to get there is something that is unexpected. It means that you have to be the least of everyone, that you have to serve, that you have to be slave of all. That's what Jesus tells us. He says, if you want to be great, you have to be the least. If you want to be first, you have to be last. And so there is this, then he goes on to say, well, are you willing to drink the cup that I drink? Are you willing to be baptized in, in my baptism? Like, are you willing to suffer the way that I have suffered? Are you willing to follow the path that I went down? Because if you're willing to do that, then yes, in the kingdom, you will be exalted. On earth, you will not be. You'll be mistreated. You'll be trampled upon. You will be servant to all. But again, Jesus, like it's not something crazy that Jesus is asking of us because Jesus did it himself. And not only did he do it, but he did it when he was God. Like when I do it, I'm just doing it as a fellow man, right? But he did it as God to come and not be served, but to serve. And so the other 10 disciples, they, they ended up hearing this and they get upset. And it says in Matthew 20, 24, it says, when the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers, right? It's like, dude, how, you got your mom involved in this? Like, they're like, shoot, we should have thought of that. Now they have an edge on us. And now, you know, Jesus is probably going to tell, yeah, they can be sitting on them right hand and left hand. So there's this, this conflict, this battle that we see come out amongst the disciples, but really we see their hearts being displayed is that they're so focused on themselves and the greatness of themselves that they're missing out on, on everything that Jesus is revealing to them and showing them. But the beautiful thing about all of it is that Jesus doesn't just cast them off to the side and say, look, you know, I'm going to go find some humble guys. You know, I'm going I'm to go find some different guys. You know, because, it, because in reality, if, if we look around the room, like, we are all very prideful people. We love us. Our, we love ourselves so much. And yet Jesus can still use us, and Jesus can bring about humility in a, in a servant's heart within us. But it all happens as we look unto Jesus and not on ourselves. And so Jesus gives them this example of how they need to look at him and how he has displayed this humility and how this humility will then make you great. Right? You want to be the greatest in the kingdom? You've got to be the least here on earth. You've got to be servant to all. And I know that, that, that contradicts everything that we have been taught and we know in this world. Right? You want to... You listen to some motivational speaker on YouTube about being the greatest in this world and whatever. Well, you got to step on some people. You gotta, you gotta be all about yourself. You gotta be, you know, it, it's 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 building yourself up while tearing others down so that you can become great. And Jesus says, "No, my kingdom is the opposite of that. That that you build others up while you lay yourself down." And so he takes a little child. In verse forty-seven, it says. Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. I wonder how that happened. It's like, they just grab a kid and pull him over? Like, what? Do the parents know? But anyways, he had a kid in front of him just to give him a little object lesson. And he was going to answer their question about greatness using this child. And so Jesus could have answered their question, who is the greatest? And who do you think the answer would have been? Me, like Jesus. Jesus saying, me, I'm the greatest, right? Jesus is the greatest, but he's so great that he doesn't even have to say it, 
right? He doesn't even have to tell him, like, I am the greatest. I hate those, like, arguments about, like, who's the greatest basketball player and who's the greatest this, who's the greatest that. And it's, like, it's, it's, so, it's so dumb. Like, who cares? Because at the end of it all, Ecclesiastes tells us, like, it's, it's vanity. It leads to nothing. It means nothing. But Jesus is the greatest, and he's so great that he doesn't even have to argue about it. He doesn't even have to, he doesn't have to say anything. He just shows us by who he is and his nature because he simply is the greatest. And so instead of pointing to himself, he drew their attention to his nature and who he is by having, having them look at this little child as an example. And he says in verse 48, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be great. And so Jesus is showing us that this child is a reflection of himself. And that Jesus is a reflection of God, of the Father in heaven. And so he uses the child as an example. And Jesus indirectly points to himself as being the greatest in the kingdom. But as they're struggling and they're, and they're, they're fighting with their pride, Jesus brings about this little child. And we know children just, just to be different, right? Not that they're innocent because they're sinners, but they're different in the sense of they're, they're humble. They're gentle, you know, for the most part, right? They're, they're different. And then once, once we grow up and we, we gain this knowledge, sometimes we, we lose just that, that beautiful essence that children have and the humility that children have. And so Jesus, again, he points to the nature of himself, that he's like one of these little children, and how we treat these children who are humble— or how we treat people who are humble, like children, shows what we think of the nature of Jesus. So I think it's, it's twofold. It's, it's that we treat people like this child and that we're also like the child, that we're humble, that we're lowly. It says, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Jesus saying that if you want to know God, then you must know the one that God sent. Who did God send? Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Mark says in Mark 10, verses 42 through 45, he says, Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So you don't become great in God's eyes by stepping on people, by mistreating people, but by learning how to serve others and by serving others. And that's what Jesus did. He came to serve. F.B. Meyer says this. He said, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves stacked one higher than the other. And the higher you got, the more gifts you got. Then I found out that they were really on shelves one lower than the next. And the lower you became, the more you received. And I like that. And what I like in the midst of all this is seeing that, you know, yeah, we see the pride. We see the selfishness. We see the arrogance. But Jesus didn't pick perfect people to follow him. Right? And I know in this room that none of us are perfect. None of us are. But Jesus is. And we can follow the one who is perfect, and he picks messy people, he picks broken people, he picks sinful people, but it's the repentant people, the people who trust in Jesus, who will truly follow after the one who is perfect. 
and he can transform us, and he can renew us, and he can make us whole. And so in verse 49, we'll come into a close here, last section. It says, John answered, and he said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. And so, again, here we see that there's this fight for this greatness. Who's the greatest of all? Pride coming in. And with that pride also comes, like, insecurity, right? It, it, it comes with not being secure in just what God has called you to do and who you are in God. And so John sees someone else casting out demons in Jesus' name, and he, and he tells him, stop. He forbade him. Because John says, well, I did that because he's not following with us. I mean, that would, that would make us then think, by John's logic, that the only 12 Christians on earth at that point who followed Jesus were those 12, or, or the only Christians on that were those 12. But that's not the case. There were others who followed Jesus. There were others who, who believed that he was the Messiah and that he was the Son of God who followed him. And we see here that this someone, we don't know who it is, is casting out demons in his name, that he has the same power and authority that was given to the disciples. And so when there's this competition, this pride that comes in, sometimes we can be insecure and we can, you know, we can stop people from doing what God has called them from, to do, even though maybe they don't go to the same church as us. I mean, it would be really naive of us to think that our church is the only church in Clayton that is truly bor- has born-again people in it and that truly follow Jesus. Would that be pretty naive to think? Yeah. I would. Now, on the flip side, I also don't believe that every single church that you could ever go to also follows Jesus, okay, and, is, and also has born-again believers. But for us to think that our church, or even Calvary Chapel, or even just non-denominational churches are the only ones that truly follow Jesus and are born again, that would be naive of us to think. You know, the unfortunate thing with Christianity is that there are so many denominations, and there are some that get it completely wrong. There are some that don't. There are some things that we, 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 we err on, on, on minor differences, and that's okay. I believe that to be okay. But there's one thing that we cannot err on, and that is who Jesus is, what the gospel is, and how, how we are to be born again. We cannot differ on those things. So Jesus says to him, do not forbid him. Don't do that. He says, for he who's not against us is on our side. Now, give me like five minutes to break this down because this could be taken out of context and and misconstrued. I want us to understand that there could be people who call themselves Baptists, right? And I believe that they can be born again. I wouldn't consider myself Baptist. Somebody else may consider themselves Baptist, and I believe they could be born again. There's other denominations, and then there's, you know, there's other uh, denominations like, they're not Christian, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness. It's more of a cult. And even though they use the Bible, we would think that, well, Jesus says, you know, if they're not against us, they're on our side. You know, Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, they're not really, like, fighting against us, right? I mean, they don't agree with us and we don't agree with them, they use the same Bible, kind of, we would think, well, aren't we all on the same team? Aren't we all on the same side? And the answer to that is no. When Jesus says, 
if they're, if, they're, if they're not against us, they're on our side. He's not pointing to universalism, that, that all roads lead to God, that all, all roads lead to heaven. Okay, that's not what he's saying. He's saying just because, you know, they're not against us, you have to understand that in context that this man is following and doing what Jesus has called them to do. And even though they didn't look like the disciples, even though they didn't have the same style and flavor as the disciples, they still followed the same Jesus, and that's what's important. And that's when Jesus says, look, they're on our side. But if they follow a different Jesus, then they're not on our side. And that's why you will hear me or Pastor Kevin or a few of us where we will call out pastors who do not teach the same Jesus, even though they use the Bible. Even though it may look like and sound like exactly the same thing, when they err on a few things when it comes to Jesus, it's not the same Jesus. And Paul even warns us of that. And so, yeah, there's different styles, there's different flavors per se. And there's even different motives when it comes to Jesus. And Paul even says, that's okay. I don't think it's right. God will deal with that aspect of it. But as long as the content of what they're saying and believing is right and true, that's great. In Philippians 1, 15 through 18, it says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. Paul's in prison at this point. But the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Paul was like, look, I, I don't know their motive. Whether their motive, motive is here or there, as long as what they are preaching is Christ and to be true, that is what I rejoice in. That is what I rejoice in. Again, He's not, he's not, his concern here is not with the content. Paul's not like, yeah, yeah, they're preaching a different Christ. That's great. No, they're preaching the same Christ. He's, he's not concerned about the motives of those who preach at this point. He knows that God will deal with them. And Paul did object if he thought there was a false or distorted gospel being preached, just in the same way that Jesus would. Even if the person had the best of motives, but he was preaching a different content and a different gospel, it would be incorrect. In Galatians chapter 1, 6-9, through 9, it says this, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. So again, when Jesus says, do not forbid him, for he is not against us, for he who is not against us is on our side, Jesus understands that these people are truly following Jesus. They're just not in the same group as the disciples here. But that doesn't mean that they're, they're against them, that they're all not on the same team. What, what gets us off the same team is not the minor things. It's who Jesus is. And there's many churches, and I, and I hope and I pray that when you guys grow up and you have to find your own church or whatever it may be, if you move, that you again find a church that preaches the right Jesus, that preaches the Jesus of the Gospels, that doesn't take away anything from Jesus and doesn't add anything to Jesus. And there are many out there who, who do. 
and Paul warns us of it all throughout scriptures. Jesus warns us of it. That's how Satan works. Like, we know Satan's in the world, right? Like, we, we know of the evil demonic things. We, we know of, you know, witchcraft. We know of de- demonic things. We know of uh, sin and you know, all this horrible, horrendous stuff. We know that Satan's a part of it. But we also have to be aware that Satan is a part of the church, too, in the sense that he works in the church, that he disguises himself not as a man in a pitchfork and a red suit, right? What does he disguise himself as? An angel of light, right? An angel of light. And how do we then know if that is Satan or one of the people that Satan is using? Well, we look at what they're preaching. Is it the gospel? Is it Jesus? Because Satan will not preach the gospel because that goes against everything that he desires. He doesn't want you to know Jesus Christ for who he truly is. But if he can give you a Jesus that's different than the Jesus in the gospel, and he veers you off the path just a hair, which still leads to destruction, oh, he's won. He's not going to tempt you with something that's completely outlandish. He's going to tempt you with something that looks like what's in Scripture, but it's not Scripture. And that's why we have to be in the Word of God. We have to know who God is. We have to be continually walking with him, that we, that he, that we know his voice, so that when the angel of light comes or somebody who is, is a false teacher and a false prophet, that when they speak, it just, it just doesn't sound right. It just doesn't hit right. Because we know that it's not what we've seen in Scripture. Because this has authority over every single thing and every single person. This will always take authority, not someone's opinion. And that's one of the things we need to be careful of is that we know who Jesus is for who he is and who he's revealed himself to be, not for who we want him to be. And that was one of the disciples' mistakes is that they wanted Jesus to set up his kingdom. They wanted him to overthrow, you know, the Roman government and to take them out of the oppression. But that wasn't Jesus' plan. Jesus' plan was to save them from their sins. And so we have to be careful that we don't make up a Jesus for what, he wanted, what we want him to be, that we don't make up a God for what he, we want him to be, right? Like I, I've heard teachers say, you know, I, I thought about God's love And the more I thought about it, I just heard this this week, the more I thought about it, I came to realize because he is loving that there is no hell. Because because he's loving. He's he's pure. He's he's beautiful. Why, why Why would there be a hell created and why would he send people to hell? And you're like, oh, oh, snap. That does, does sound like a good God. That's, that's, you just made up a really good God, but that's the thing. You, you, that's what you perceive. That's what you want him to be. But we don't make up our God. God is who he is. And with, without us trying to make him up or figure out who he is, he's, he's shown us who he is. He's revealed us to us who he is. And so, yeah, God is loving. The guy's right. But there's also consequences. There's also free will. There's also condemnation. There's also justice, righteousness. There's truth. Like, you can't just pick one aspect of who God is. You can't. We have to take it as God is in all of it. So, again, this isn't about universalism. This isn't about proving that all religions are the same and that we worship God in different ways and it all leads to God. That's, that's not the case. But there is one way to God, and that's through Jesus. 
And that's through the right Jesus. It's through the true Jesus. It's through the gospel that we see of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning or now this afternoon and just the word that we were able to study and get through. I pray that you just continue to speak to us these things as I know sometimes we, we may forget even a minute later. Um, but even as you've shown us with the disciples that, that they remembered these things, that, that an event took place and all of a sudden it clicked. And so I pray that for us, that whether it's five minutes from now or five years from now, that the things that you are teaching us would click and that we would understand and believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.